The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. And uh, obviously, we're going to talk about envy for a little bit today here. So um, you notice the set is still, if you were here for Easter, it's not like people didn't have time to tear it down. We're actually going to keep this going for about the next five weeks or so. And we're going to talk about how the resurrection ties into how we can conquer and defeat sin in our lives even now, okay? So if you have an outline, we're going to just jump right in here. If you, There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to pull that out. If you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, there's some blanks right away, okay? So get your pen out and get ready. Um, I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, by the way. It's great to have you here at Parkview today. So um, we uh, looked at this verse last week for Easter. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Uh, where Paul said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, uh, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And so we talked about last week how the gospel saves us. That's your first blank there. The gospel saves us. So our sins are forgiven when you put your faith in Christ. You begin a relationship um, with God. But sometimes as Christians, we just look at the gospel as being like an on-ramp and an off-ramp. Like the on-ramp is how you start to begin a relationship with God, your sins are forgiven, you stand in that. And then the off-ramp is like, you hope in the gospel that when you die, then you will go to heaven. But there's a whole highway in between called our lives, where the gospel has a powerful implication in how we confront and deal with sin in our lives. So um, we also saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, where it made the statement that you um, receive the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. There's like a, a present tense. You are being saved from the gospel. So in your second blank there, you can put that the gospel sanctify, <clears throat> sanctifies us. And sanctify means that you get set apart from the way you were. You become new. You become more like God. You become more holy. And so the gospel can help us now as we confront um, the sins in our lives. And so God will take us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way, okay? And that's what sanctification is. It's growing. And so the gospel has a really key part in us growing and dealing with the sin in our lives. In fact, we looked at these two verses last week. The third point there is that the Bible encourages us, I would say maybe commands and and challenges us to kill sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at these verses last week. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. And so what God would long for us to do is to continue to enjoy the work of the gospel. After you receive Christ as your Savior, let the gospel continue to set you free from sin so that you can truly be alive, so that you can live the life that Jesus died for you to have. And so what we're going to do over these next weeks um, is talk about how the gospel helps us fight sin. Maybe an analogy is when, um, I know when I was little, when my kids were a little younger, um, we'd, one of the games we like to play in a pool is you get the biggest, like, ball, if you have a huge, let's say you have a huge beach ball, and the goal is can you keep that beach ball underwater, okay? So, like, with the kids, it'd be hilarious. Like, they'd get on top and just flip over, right, and go under. But I'd try it, and sometimes you're riding on it, and you're keeping it down pretty good, but eventually it's just going to blast out of the water, right? And so I feel like sometimes that's how Christians try to deal with sin in their lives on their own 
power then, and it doesn't look like much fun to the watching world. Like you're straining to stay on top of that beach ball, and then eventually it just erupts, and everybody sees your sin. And so, like, what if uh, we really employed the gospel that God would like like us to, uh, and invites us to, to really tackle the sin in our lives? And so that's what we're doing, and we're going to take some of what are known as the seven deadly sins. Um, that phrase, if you look throughout the Bible, you will not find the seven deadly sins. Okay, I'll save you an afternoon of looking. But um, the seven deadly sins were really cemented in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. And really, there were a couple early church fathers and a pope here or there. They were really cemented in the Catholic tradition. There are lists in the Bible where it talks about things that God hates, for example, in Proverbs 6. Or in Galatians 5, there's a list of sins that talk about the sins that are just evident out of our hearts, you know, before we meet Christ. And so there are definitely sin lists. And the seven things, even though they're called the deadly sins, every sin kills us. Every sin separates us from God, apart from, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Apart from the gospel, any sin is bad for us. But these seven are actually really good ones for us to target. And um, the one we're going to look at again today is envy. And I'll have to be really honest with you. Like when we laid this series out, Jeff uh, Gilmore is going to preach a couple of these. Doug Fern's going to preach one. And I kind of says, guys, why don't you pick from the list? And when envy landed on me, there was a part of me that just went, oh, I get envy. Like envy, like it didn't sound like that big a deal, right? Oh, man, until I, again, in a fresh way, started looking at envy, uh, and I see a ton of envy in my heart. So this morning, I am not an expert on conquering envy. Right now, I feel like an expert of in the midst of envy, and I've seen some great things this week that I want to share with you, too, and maybe it's done the same thing to you this morning. You hear envy, you go, oh, envy? Is that all we're going to talk about? Uh, it's, we're going to see, we're going to define envy. We're going to diagnose it when it's in our hearts. We're going to talk about how dangerous it is. And then we're going to talk about how to defeat it with the truths of the gospel, okay? So let's pray, and then let's jump in, jump into this one. And um, like I like to start my sermons, could you pray first? Could you pray that God would open your eyes and show you um, where envy is robbing your life, robbing your joy, where it's hurting your relationships? Ask God, to show you uh, where there is envy in your life this morning. And then could you please pray for me that I would speak clearly, that I would speak accurately according uh, to the Bible. We want to listen to what Doug says. We want to listen to what the Bible says. So pray that the Bible would come forth in my teaching this morning. God, thanks for your love for us. Thanks that you meet with us tangibly as we study your word. And I thank you that you care enough about us to confront things like envy in our lives. So be our teacher today. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, let's define envy. And sometimes envy is a tricky word to define because um, as some of the writers that I've read this week talk about envy, say envy is a sin that likes to run in a pack. It's like a wolf that you'll often see when it's listed, there's several other sins kind of clumped around it. So sometimes we get confused between jealousy and being a covetous person or envy. Like, you know, what's the distinction there? So quickly, jealousy is when you fear losing something that belongs to you. Like maybe uh, when you were younger uh, and you had a best friend and then that best friend started spending time with somebody else and you would be jealous 
of that other person because you might be losing something that's yours, okay? That's jealousy. Covetousness is when you see that somebody else has something and you want what they have. You want that thing or that just whatever it is about them. When you covet it, it means you want it, okay? Now, envy is a little more insidious than I think than both of those. Envy is when you see, um, basically, you want somebody else's life. Like you see somebody else's setup. You see maybe what they look like or what their abilities are or what they, what they have or the relationships around them or basically they have something that you don't. And it's not just that you want what they have, but you're mad that they've got it. Like they don't deserve it. I do. And this can take you either towards that route of you're mad at them. That's why it's often linked with things like malice or slander, um, just bitterness, okay? Those kind of words can be, that's one of the, those are some of the pack, other wolves in the pack that envy can run with. Um, it can also take you into different directions. Like you can go into self-pity or just be, you know, woe is me. Why don't I have what, what they have? And so um, it's a pretty insidious thing. You see it throughout the Bible. For example, um, we just studied, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the trials. Uh, in the Gospels, it tells us that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. That's why they wanted to kill him. Envy led them to want to kill Christ. They envied his authority and his teaching and the following. And so, so you see envy in that story even that we just walked through in the last week. In Romans 1, for example, kind of at the end of the chapter, where it talks about the depths to which humanity goes when it rejects God and isn't thankful to God. Here's one of the lists. Again, well, you'll see the pack that envy runs with. It says that the people there are described as being filled with all manners of unrighteousness, with evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast, okay? So that's defining envy for us. Well, let's, let's diagnose it. Let's see if we've got envy in our lives. So there's basically a word for envy or the concept of envy in every culture. This seems to be something that is easily a part of every culture. And I would suggest there, there probably is some level of envy in, in your heart. I know there is in mine today. I think it runs rampant in the United States. We live in a culture that we sometimes pay and give billions of dollars to our smartest, most creative minds, and their job is to make you discontent with what you have or what you look like so that you'll buy something and you'll get something. The, the whole marketing and advertising industry is really meant to play off of this tendency we have to be envious, okay? And so if you're an American and don't struggle with envy, they're you're, you're amazing. Okay, so it's probably there in us somewhere. So how can I tell if I'm struggling with envy? Well, you're envious when you see something good happen to a person who maybe has the stuff or the, the blessings in life or things go well for them and not for you. When you see that person do well, maybe on the outside you go, oh man, that's great, bro. I'm so excited for you. But inside you're going, man, that stinks. Like, why him? Why has that happened to her? Like, why is that going to him? Why doesn't that happen to me? So you don't genuinely get excited at other people's success. Um, envy results in bitterness or anger toward that person. It makes you resent them. It makes you maybe talk about them or look for ways to cut them down, look for ways to, you know, celebrate when they don't do as well as, as you do. So actually, if you're free from envy, then when something good goes in somebody else's world, you genuinely are excited about that. Does that ever happen for you? Like when something really good goes 
with somebody, maybe even it's somebody you compete with or you're working with or whatever, and they truly get recognized or blessed or something really good, do you genuinely just go, man, that's awesome? Like, again, not just on the outside, but that's your first response. Okay, that's a sign that you're free from envy. You truly enjoy other people's uh, success. But, but does this happen to you? What if somebody that you, are, you tend to be envious of, like they have blessing or privilege that you don't have or abilities you don't have, and something goes um, poorly for them? Like, on the outside, are you like, oh, man, that's too bad. But inside, you're going, yes. You know, like it's about time. It's, it's payback. You got to just dig in your hearts, do you truly enjoy their successes and do you truly grieve when uh, people are unhappy? And so, and so diagnosing envy is there. Now, envy is a, is a really dangerous thing. Proverbs 14.30 says this, that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot, okay? A tranquil heart, think about a satisfied heart, a peaceful heart, a heart that's content. When your heart is in that place, it just feeds life into you. But what a, what a description. Envy makes the bones rot. If your bones are rotting, you're in trouble. Like, doesn't that just sound nasty? Like, how's he, how are you doing today? Well, I'm kind of struggling. My bones are rotting. Like, that's a big deal right there, okay? So, so that's, a, that's, that's kind of the, the, the picture God's trying to give us, that envy can kill our joy. It kills our capacity to love, and it kills our intimacy with God, bottom line. So just think about how envy kills our joy. There's a book on envy that I read um, actually when we were in our James series last fall, written by Joseph Epstein. It's in the Oxford Press series of books on the seven deadly sins, not necessarily from a Christian perspective, but he, he makes several good observations about envy. One of them is, out of the seven deadly sins, only envy has no payback for you, okay? If you look at the other deadly sins, uh, and he, again, he's speaking from a secular, non-biblical perspective, but he says there's something you get back. There's at least some pleasure you get back from the other six deadly sins. For example, anger. When you get angry, you just feel like maybe some sense of venting and relief, right? So anger, it feels so good to let it out. And there's Bobby Knight with his classic throwing the chair across the court, right? At least you feel, at least briefly, there's a release. Like, that felt good to get that off my chest. But now you got to deal with the shrapnel of what you just said, right? But at least there's a little pause where maybe it felt good. Again, that's not, yeah, biblically speaking, not true, but there's that. Here's another one. What about uh, sloth is one of the deadly sins? And I love this poster. Procrastination. Hard work often pays off after time, but laziness always pays off now. So if that's your motto, like you're the procrastinator in the house, right? And so at least there's some payback. Like at least I, I rested today, but you, then you pay the consequences of you're even further behind tomorrow. But it makes an interesting point that the other deadly sins, there's at least some reprieve. But he says from the instant you start experiencing envy, your joy is gone. It just kills. It kills your ability to enjoy things that you've achieved because you're constantly measuring what you've done with what others have done. Or how much acknowledgement did you get for what you did compared to what everybody else is getting. Or there's always people that might do it better, faster, Again, get more praise for it. And so if you're envious, you can't enjoy what you've done, can't enjoy, enjoy your achievements. You can't enjoy the things that you have, 
because there'll always be somebody with something newer. You got 5.0, they got 6.0. Like there's always some newer, shinier, different things that you don't have, so you, don't be, you can't be content with what you have, okay? Um, if you're loaded up with envy, you're gonna be constantly critical of your body. You're gonna, and again, we have a whole industry that just markets that, that forces you to look at yourself and just go, you don't measure up, you need this. You need this product, you need to wear this. You know, those kind of things. And again, I'm not talking about, it's healthy at times to set goals and to strive to become, you know, more of what God has created you to be. I'm not saying just like flatline and don't look for any growth in your life. But there's something about envy where you can never be content with what you have or with who you are or with what you've achieved. Bottom line is that envy keeps you from just enjoying your life. You can never just kick back and be satisfied. There's, there's, it's like a treadmill you're on. You've just got to keep up and you've got to keep up. So it, it kills your joy. It kills, envy kills your capacity to love other people. Um, if you've got people in your life that you work with or that you're envious of, you're not going to move toward them with genuine love or concern, you know, like we're called to do um, as followers of Christ. You just won't do that. And you're going to be envious of them. You're going to be competing with them. There's going to be a tension. And the other danger is in your relationships is that you might get so tired of playing the envy games that you might just pull back from your relationships. You might just get tired because you are so envious. You're so much in that spot that things are not good for you, that you just get tired of hearing everybody else uh, talk about, for example, their marriage, and maybe you're not married, or they're talking about how awesome their marriage is, and yours is bad right now, or they're talking about their kids, and you don't have kids, or they're talking about how their kids are excelling in all these activities, and your kids are, you know, whatever. You know, like, just nothing measures up, so instead of going, putting yourself through that and hearing that, you pull back, and your relationships are just, if they exist, they're on the surface level at, at the most, okay? So envy kills your capacity to love. And I think um, that even can happen in the home, that if you are a dad who struggles with envy, like if you just look at how all the other kids are doing in your kids' classes, man, you are gonna be a jerk of a dad. Like all you're gonna do is pick out what your kids are doing wrong. You're gonna be pushing them. You're gonna be, there's gonna be a bite. Again, healthy dads motivate their kids to grow, but there's going to be an ugly bite to your being a dad with your kids if you're just struggling with envy and making sure your kids are keeping up with what everybody else's kids are doing. Or uh, you'll be a grumpy spouse, you know, if you're constantly just envious of other marriages and, man, they have three date nights a week. They do a trip a month. They do, you know, like, they're always laughing. They're in shape. They're, you know, like, whatever it is that contrasts their marriage and yours, like, if you're, if you're wrapped up in envy there, you're going to be a grumpy husband or wife. And uh, again, just it, envy just, just kills our capacity to truly love the people in our lives. And I think worst of all is that envy really kills our intimacy with God. Because really at the core, the core of envy, and let's talk, it's dandelion season soon. Like uh, if you want to kill a dandelion, you got to get at the root of the thing. You don't just pop off the yellow heads, right, and hope it goes away. Like that thing's coming back. So same thing with envy. If you want to really kill envy in your life, We've got to hit it at the root level. And I think the root of envy is that we believe the lie that God is not good, that God is ripping me off, that God is good to everybody else, but he's not good to me, or God is hearing everybody else's prayer, but he's not answering my prayer. And so when you're not content with God, you're not going to want to get closer to God, or if you're not convinced God is good, you're not going to want to obey him. You're just going to drift further and further away from God because that lie you're believing uh, when you're in the midst of envy, is that God is not good. 
So it's just going to kill your intimacy with God. Tim Keller makes a really good point on this whole topic of envies. What you want to do then is follow your envies. Like, what do you find yourself envying in other people? And what you're doing is you're taking whatever it is that person has or can do, and you're substituting that for really what only God can fill in your life. You're looking for satisfaction from the people you, the things that the people you envy have and can do that, again, only God can do for you in your relationship with him. So envy kills your intimacy with God. So let's talk about now two truths to combat those lies. Let's talk about two truths um, that we can cling to uh, to defeat envy in our lives. And the first one is this, crave the truth that God is good. Like just crave to know the truth that God is good. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. It says this, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. You see envy running in a pack again, particularly slander. Somebody you're envious of, you're going to cut them down. You're going to bring them down to size, okay? And there's malice in there. So um, get rid of those things. And then verse two, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, okay? So first of all, there's, there's the command. Get rid of envy from your life. Verse two is, how do you do that? So you, like a newborn baby, you crave the scripture. You crave truth. That's the pure spiritual milk. You, you crave. It's been 13-ish years since I've been in my home around a newborn baby, okay? But I've been around some in this last year that it's kind of nice to be around them, but it's kind of nice to go home because uh, when a newborn baby is hungry, everything shuts down, right? You don't just say, oh, if you could wait about 15 minutes, you don't reason. You know, hey, mom will be home in 15 minutes. Hey, we're thawing the bottle. It'll be, it'll be there soon. Like, you don't do that. There's just craving and screaming, like, give me my bottle, feed me. And so I love that analogy, what Peter is saying. If you want to kill envy in your life, there's, hey, what, almost on time, like 15 seconds earlier, that would have been perfect timing. So that wasn't a craving scream, though. That was... This guy's going too long, Mom. So that's what that one was. But, um, uh, but that craving scream, I love that analogy, like crave, hunger, cry out for the truth of God. And, you know, like Doug said earlier, the church, we're taking a survey, and a couple of the questions are going to be, please be honest, like you don't have to impress us. I think, I think they're anonymous. Um, but you will be asked some things about your reading the Bible. Like, the, uh, we will grow as a church, you will grow as a Christian in proportion to how much you are feeding on the word of God, how much you are feeding on the truth of God. Because we live in a world where you're going to be constantly bombarded with lies and things that aren't true. And for you to grow, you're going to have to know what is true. Out of all that, in Ephesians 6, it talks about different parts of an armor that God gives you to stand strong in this world. The only one that is offensive is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God wants you to know his truth so that you can combat the lies when they come at you, particularly the lies that God is not good. That um, was the core lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden, that God is not good, that God is holding out on you. And, And all sorts of sin erupts out of that lie that God is not good. Because we'll conclude, well, since God isn't good, then I need to look other places to be satisfied. 
And that's, that's one of the biggest lies that, that you'll believe. So, so Peter says, crave uh, the spiritual milk so that you can grow up in your salvation. And then he says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that word, taste. God doesn't want us, and it isn't effective to combat envy if we just know in our heads that God is good. True or false is God good? True. That's, that's not good enough. When you see the Bible talk about us and our experience with the goodness of God, it uses words like taste. Do you know this? Like, are you convinced of this? Do you experience this? Let me, let me recommend to you Psalm 73. It's a great chapter. We're not going to go through the whole thing this morning. Let me give you the Doug's Notes version of it. But it's a great picture of a guy who was envious. He was looking around at how other people were being blessed, and even unrighteous people were being blessed. Like, they didn't give a rip about God, and they were doing awesome in their lives. And he was mad about that, and he was kind of venting it with God until you get to verse 17, and it says that he came into the sanctuary of God. It means he came into the presence of God. And then his heart was stilled because he truly saw who God is. And listen to some of his descriptions. It's in Psalm 73, verse 21. He said, when I saw this, when he saw that actually the unrighteous, it doesn't go well for them because they are living apart from God. He says, when I saw that, what turmoil filled my heart. I saw myself so stupid and so ignorant. I must seem like an animal to you, O God. He's like, God, why did I doubt you? Why was I saying all those things that I said earlier in the psalm? But look at verse 23. But even so, you love me. Now listen to how tangibly he knows the goodness of God. He says, even when I've just been a big jerk to you, God, you love me. You're holding me by my right hand. You keep on guiding me all my life with your wisdom and counsel. And afterwards, you receive me into the glories of heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I desire no one on earth as much as you. My health fails. My spirits droop. And yet God remains. He is the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. That's what God would love for us to do, is just to be so convinced and so aware of how he has been good to us. Can I tell you this morning that that getting at the root of envy isn't going to just happen by listening to this sermon this morning. I think there needs to be a regular rhythm in our lives where we crave uh, the truth of the goodness of God. Let me write down some of these. Let me give you some parts of the Bible that are my go-to places. Because I think we need to have rhythms in our lives where we recognize how, God, how God's been good to us. Where if you're a journaler, you're writing those things down. If you're starting your prayer time, you start with reflecting on the goodness of God. Let me give you a few that I love. Um, psalm 136, you'll see that that's a psalm where every verse ends with, um, his loving kindness endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. His loving kindness, is there a point he's trying to get through to us? Yes, we are thick people. We need to understand. And so it'll give you every reason. And then, you know, his loving kindness endures forever. So look at Psalm 136. Look at Psalm 103. Um, Jacob read some of that to us earlier this morning. Look at Romans 8, 28 through 39 just some rich passages. And so the kind of rhythm I'm talking about is a regular time where you are still and you are reflecting on how God has been good to you. And God's ultimate goodness has been shown to us in the gospel. 
that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us, okay? And so that you will not see a greater display of the goodness of God to you in the fact that Jesus died for us when we were sinners. And then the promise that emerges out of that, again, it's in that Romans 8 passage I mentioned to you. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So, so crave the truth that God is good. And have that be a regular rhythm in your life. And the second one is this. Pray to see that God is glorious. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more. What does that mean? Pray to see that God is glorious. Look at Proverbs 23, 17. It says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Okay, at first reading, if you're new to the Bible, you look at that and you go, okay, does God want me to just go around like hunched over all day long, like afraid he's going to beat me down? So actually the word fear, the Lord means to be in awe. Uh, awe is a good word. Be in awe of how astonishing God is and his strength and, and his wisdom and in his love. And there is an element of fear in that because you look in the Bible when people came in the presence of God, their first reaction was to go on their face, okay? And so the same would be true for us this morning. If the glory of God would show up, we would all go down. There would be few dry sets of pants in this room. Like we would just be blown away in the presence of the glory of God. But yet God quickly follows that with his love. A great place to look for that is in Revelation chapter one, when John was the apostle who was like Jesus' best friend on the planet. And then John gets a view of what Jesus is like in his glory in heaven. And when he sees Jesus in his glory, he just falls like he's a dead man. He's so blown away. He's so astonished. And then Jesus, you know, picked him up and said no. And so, and so that's, that's what the psalmist, that's what um, we're invited into. And I'm sorry, in Proverbs 23, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. A great, a, a great place you can see that is in John 21, this, this invitation uh, to walk with the glory, the awareness of the glory of God. It's John 21. It's right after the Easter story, okay? So Jesus died, Jesus rose again from the dead. Uh, Jesus appeared to his disciples. They were all in a locked room and Jesus just appeared and, um, and they were freaked out and he said, fear not. And they saw it was him. And so then he said, as the father has sent me, now I'm sending you. So go. You read the next chapter and you go, wait, what are they doing? Because they all go fishing. Okay, so why are you fishing? Jesus just said, go. As the reason I've been sent, the father sent me, I'm sending you. They go fishing. And so they don't catch anything. They see a guy on the shore and finally they recognize it's Jesus. Peter jumps in and swims to shore. Jesus has breakfast with his disciples. And then Jesus pulls Peter aside and just kind of reinstates him. Because if you remember the story, Peter's just denied Jesus three times. And so kind of in three different ways, Jesus reaffirms his relationship with Peter and reaffirms to Peter that he's got a part on the team, okay? So, and then Jesus says something really hard to Peter. Jesus predicts the way that Peter is going to die. Basically, Jesus warns Peter that he's going to be martyred for following Jesus. And so in true Peter fashion, if you know Peter and kind of the competition that exists among the disciples, John is standing right there too, okay? And so Peter turns to John and says, Jesus, what about him? Like, what's going to happen to him? Like, there's some envy even after the resurrection, after Jesus is alive. And guys, I love the response uh, that Jesus had to Peter. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about John? And Jesus answered, 
If, you, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You know, don't, worry, don't worry about what's happening to John, my plans for him. You follow me. You guys, that's an easy phrase for us to just whip right past. Let's slow down on that. The invitation for Peter to follow Jesus is astonishing. Think about who Jesus is. This one who today is in heaven full of glory. He is in total charge of every square inch of this planet. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Again, if he were to appear in his glory, we would all be on our faces. Like Peter's invitation is follow me. Come be a part of a relationship with, with such a glorious one as me. Come be a part of the work that I'm doing. You talk about an amazing honor. You know, we have the Olympic trials coming up next week, and what an honor it would be. Uh, we have a wrestler even in our ranks that's trying to become part of the Olympic team. Like, what an amazing honor, and that really would be an amazing achievement. But just uh, even beyond that, the, the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords says, follow me. There's amazing contentment in that, you guys. There's, there's amazing awareness of how way more glorious is that invitation to be in relationship with Jesus than it is to have all these things that we envy that other people can do and that other people have. Like, so the other thing we need to pray for is, God, show me how glorious you are. Show me how awesome you are so that these other things I envy and get really petty about really are nothing compared to this amazing invitation to follow you. And so the way we defeat the lies of envy is by clinging to those two truths, that God is great and, so, and that God is glorious, okay? And so the way I want to wrap up today is I want to, before we head out, I want to give you a taste of what a prayer time could look like for you sometime in this next week, that if you want to get serious about envy, I'd suggest you block. This isn't a quick look at a precious moments poster. God is good. Okay, that's good enough. Like, it's got to be way more than that. I'm saying carve out 10, 15 minutes at least. It's got to maybe even longer for you, but just to be in God's presence and reflect on his goodness and, and his glory. So I just want to give you a taste of that right now. So if you could just pray right now. Let me just first invite you to, to just focus on God's goodness. How has God been good to you? And just quietly, privately, why don't you pray to him right now and just say, God, I, I praise your name because you've been so good to me. And maybe you just give him some specifics. How has he been good to you? I met somebody last hour who's been coming here about three years. I never met her before. I said, what, what prompted you coming? She said, three years ago, I was declared cancer-free, and I'd never really gone to church. I'd never really been a part of anything like this, but I just wanted to get to know the God who was good to me and uh, met a couple last hour whose son had a heart attack three weeks ago and was about 20 minutes away from death, and God stepped in, intervened, and their son's back at work, and they were just celebrating the goodness of God. How has God been, been good to you? I mentioned Psalm 103. This might be a chapter you spend some time in when you do this this week, but let me just read a few phrases. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. He forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. Crowns you with steadfast love. He satisfies you with good things. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. How's he been good to you? God, help us crave that truth that you are good. You are so good to us. Something else you can do is spend some time with God and just focus on his glory. So why don't you do that for a minute here. Just think about what, what comes to mind when you think about how great God is. All the great things you have seen him do or that you have read about or that you know about him. Tell God about his, his glory and his greatness, his power, his majesty. Tell him about that. Like Psalm 27, verse 4 here. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Love that invitation from the word of God. Just gaze on his beauty. Gaze on his glory. Then the psalmist said this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, so God has said, seek my face. God's saying that to you, seek my face. And then the psalmist replied, my heart says to you, your, see, your face, O Lord, do I seek. God, may that be the conversation between us and you very regularly in our lives, that we gaze on your beauty, that it's your face we seek, it's your glory we long to see. And God, I pray that you would set us free, that individually in our families and as a church, please set us free from the sin of envy so that we can truly move in to other people's lives, um, free from competition, free from envy, free from malice, really move in and show your love to the people in our lives that our families would not be marked with envy and bitterness, but we would truly be set free by the truth of your goodness and your, and your glory. And then God, unleash us as a church to live generously, that we'd be free to let go of the things that we measure ourselves with or that we hold on to so we don't have to be as envious of what others have. Just help us be so set free by your goodness and by your glory that we can just confidently follow you, Jesus. I pray for rhythms in our lives where we reflect on these truths. I pray that your truth would set us free. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org.
You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.